welcome to 1867 and all that. Episode 17, The Metcalf Crisis. By the spring of 1843, it seemed to some observers that the Canadas were in the midst of a new political experiment called responsible government. Now, This was, to some, the glorious idea that a colony in the British Empire could be both autonomous and, simultaneously, part of the Empire. Responsible government meant that a colony could mirror the parliamentary government of the home country, but within the colony itself. And within domestic matters, it could do so largely at its own discretion. Back in 1841, the Canadian Assembly had basked in the glow of a resolution sponsored by the supporters of Lord Sydenham that extolled the virtues of responsible government. And ever since, the press in the colony, and many others besides, often assumed that this was the political system that everyone enjoyed. By the spring of 1843, with an ailing Charles Bagot largely removed from the scene, on his deathbed just outside Kingston, and a new governor on the way, the executive of the colony was headed by the reformers Louis Lafontaine and Robert Baldwin, two men who had staked their careers fighting for the kind of party government that responsible government required. Bagot had been so ill that they had largely governed on their own. Increasingly, Canadians were toying with the idea of giving grand names to their representative systems, things like calling their assembly a parliament they were labeling the executive a cabinet, and the executive members, well, calling them ministers. At least in the lexicon and in the popular imagination, the colony's government was a responsible government. That is, responsible to the people through the assembly, or, as you might now begin to say, through parliament. Sometimes these things can seem, in hindsight, rather too settled. We're so certain how events eventually turn out that we make the path leading to them clearer than to those at the time it really was. In reality, the idea of responsible government was still uncertain with no settled definition. The government itself, despite the presence of Baldwin and Lafontaine and their supporters, was not a complete party government the governor had still insisted that a moderate Tory sit on the executive as well. There was no guarantee that another governor might not want to have even more opposition members on the executive too. It would all depend on the strength of the parties and on the strength or determination of the governor. And what's more, even the very meaning of responsible government was up in the air. For some, it meant party government. This is a government controlled by those who had a majority in Parliament or in the Assembly. But especially in French Canada, there were still some who thought, just as much in ethnic as in political terms, who saw the benefits of the Baldwin and Lafontaine system as providing a voice for les Canadiens. And if the Lafontaine system did not provide that voice, 
or if you know someone else had a suggestion for alternate ways of making sure that French Canada was guaranteed a seat of power, then why not follow that route and abandon Lafontaine? In the spring of 1843, as another governor sailed across the seas to the Canadas, in this colony of supposed responsible government, all of these options and alternatives were very much still on the table. Charles Metcalfe set sail for the Canadas with some trepidation. Britain's new choice for Governor General came with a great deal of colonial experience. Born into an East India Company family, Metcalfe had risen to be governor of that far-off jewel of the Empire India. After that post, Metcalfe popped over to post-abolition Jamaica to try and soothe the conflicts between the former slave owners and their newly independent former slaves. And he seems to have done, at least so far as his superiors were concerned, a bang-up job. Metcalfe had built himself a reputation as a liberal fixer of problems, a competent administrator of goodwill. One prominent contemporary claimed Metcalfe was, quote, the ablest civil servant he had ever met in India. But in the Canadas, Metcalfe spied trouble. Metcalfe confessed to a friend that he accepted the governor generalship of the Canadas with great reluctance and worried that the little reputation that I have acquired is more likely to be damaged than improved in the troubled waters of Canada. Part of the problem was the very unsettled nature of the colony system of government. Did it enjoy responsible government or not? Was there still a policy to assimilate the French, yes or no? The Union of the Canadas had been meant after the rebellions to anglicize the French. The language was to be abolished in public life, the system of education was supposed to promote assimilation, and the new United Province was supposed to limit their power in government. But none of this was actually working in practice. In reality, French was used in the assembly and, more importantly, the last governor, Bagot, had found that it was impossible to find a stable majority in the assembly without acceding to the demands of the French bloc, which, by the way, very much acted en masse as a bloc to protect their interests. And now, the colony's government was essentially headed by the acknowledged leader of that bloc, Louis Lafontaine, who had insisted on bringing into government his English-Canadian counterpart Robert Baldwin, a man who the previous governor had absolutely not wanted to be on his executive. Metcalfe was sent to the Canadas by a British government who wanted him to find a way of resurrecting the political system ostensibly created by Lord Sydenham. That is, he was supposed to find a working majority of moderates in the assembly and to restore the colony some semblance of a wider, non-party government. Many in the current British Conservative government were not at all pleased with what Bagot had conceded. None other than the Queen's husband, Prince Albert, put it best when he exasperatedly asked how on earth this newfangled idea of responsible government was supposed to work in a colony. I don't see how it can work, the royal consort declared. Surely it would be tantamount to a declaration of separation from the mother country. So, this was how things stood on March 29th, 1843, when Charles Metcalfe arrived in the little Canadian capital of Kingston. Everyone talked of responsible government, but it didn't quite yet exist in practice, and Metcalfe was there to rein it in and get things back on track.
And what did the reformers Lafontaine and Baldwin think of their new man on the scene? Well, at least at first, at the very first, they were hopeful. And they had some reason to be. With Bagot out of commission, they had themselves largely been in charge. And they hoped to keep it that way. Metcalf came with good reports of being a liberal governor, though they had heard those reports before, only to be disappointed. Here's looking at you, Sir Francis Bondhead. But most importantly, in some areas, Metcalf shared a liberal sentiment about how the colony ought to be governed. Most importantly, he himself did not support the assimilationist plans that had been part of the whole United Province scheme in the first place. A colony, he thought, ought to be governed with the full support of those actually in the colony. And so the Canadian government needed the support of French Canadians. From the moment of his arrival, he found common cause with his reformer ministers on some of the issues dear to their hearts, on ending the more offensive plans to anglicize the French. First on the list, his ministers wanted the capital moved out of Kingston and back to Montreal. Metcalfe couldn't agree more. And he wrote to London saying that it would be a grand gesture, especially considering that so many lower Canadians saw the upper colony as a foreign land. Metcalfe also supported Baldwin and Lafontaine's pleas for a general amnesty for all of those who had taken part in the rebellions, except that is for those who had been involved in you know, cases of murder. On this point, he couldn't get the imperial government to agree. But if London didn't allow him to make a general amnesty, they did let him provide amnesty to individuals, and this Metcalf set out to do with abandon. So there were, in other words, places where Metcalf and Baldwin and Lafontaine saw things, if not as one, then at least with the same pair of glasses. But it ain't easy to share a pair of glasses, and Metcalf, on other matters, had his own vision for how the colony ought to be governed. Now, at this point, if you're a good 21st century Democrat, you're apt to say, what do you mean the governor general had his own ideas on government? Surely the governor should sit back, look grand, and sign bills into law. But this wasn't how Metcalf saw it. Like many in the 19th century, including many colonials themselves, Metcalf distrusted party government, governments run by partisans for the advantage of their own party. And on coming to the Canada's, that's how Metcalf saw things, as a conflict between partisan party governments and a government of all the interests in the colony. Now, of course, carefully supervised by the governor general. Now, there was a great deal of self-interest in this perspective. It preserved a role for Metcalf himself, and it would also protect British interests, putting the representative of the crown and the British government in the position of game master, controlling how all of the pieces on the political game board were set up and interacted. But there was also a high-minded ideal at work here too, about the best way to govern. And this was especially important when the one party that seemed to be almost completely in control of the colony was so closely linked to those who had either directly participated in the recent rebellions or who would at least have been perfectly happy if the rebellions had succeeded. As Metcalf put it himself, he came hoping to establish harmony, but he insisted he would not, quote, surrender the Queen's government into the hands of rebels. 
On coming to Kingston, Metcalf literally went right to the head of the table when the executive, or maybe you'd now call it the cabinet, met, and he proceeded to take charge, initiating items for action of his own accord, not just content to follow after his ministers. This, of course, irked Baldwin and Lafontaine to no end, both of whom had been managing things just fine until this point, thank you very much. So, although Metcalf tried to get on with his ministers, he didn't cave to their every demand. Mostly they fought over one issue, and we've seen this one before, patronage. Government in general, and especially in a colony, involved dispensing contracts and government jobs, patronage. And doling out these offices made you friends. It encouraged and rewarded loyalty. Metcalf believed that he could make appointments, rewarding loyalty, even to Tories, even though, to Baldwin and Lafontaine, this went against the principle of responsible government. The governor might make these appointments officially, but he ought to rely on the advice of his ministers in doing so. And it was especially annoying to the reformers that Metcalf insisted on giving some appointments to Tories. Now for Metcalf, this seemed a no-brainer. He wanted to encourage the loyalty of all, and a government by the best and the brightest. But Lafontaine and Baldwin remembered a time when Tories largely took up all or most of the patronage positions, when their own supporters were shut out of power. And now that they were finally in power, they wanted to end this process. They wanted, to put it a bit bluntly, their own turn at the trough. By the time the first session of Parliament opened in September of 1843, when Metcalf ceremoniously marched into the legislative council chambers to open the session, Baldwin and Lafontaine were already at odds with the governor. Alas, one thing to note, when they looked at their governor, legislators could see that Metcalf sported an acorn-sized tumor on his cheek. The governor had arrived in the Canadas with this facial tumor and it had only grown worse in the months since. Have I mentioned that coming to Canada's at this time was a governor general wasn't good for your health? Yes, I, I think I did. And here we go again. Now, this didn't stop the reformers from setting out a major series of reforms that autumn. They put forward a major change to the colony's education system, including establishing a system of separate Catholic schools in the upper colony. There were bills on loosening up laws about usury, that is the charging of interest, and ending primogeniture, the practice of ensuring that the firstborn son would be privileged in inheritance. In short, these were the kinds of bills that a budding capitalist society would want, opening up the market to credit and treating individuals as individuals. At the center of these reforms was our old friend Francis Hinks. While his compatriot Baldwin was an old-fashioned stickler for principles, Hinks was very happy to push ahead with the governor to get things done. But one other major bill that reformers passed that autumn angered and divided Canadians and drew them directly into conflict with the governor. This was the reformers' attempt to pass a secret society's bill. The reformers had already passed reforms to the colony's election laws to try to clean up colonial elections and make them, of course, less violent. 
the Secret Societies Bill was also really about elections. In passing the bill, the reformers wanted to essentially ban, or at the very least make powerless, the Orange Order, that Irish Protestant fraternal organization that had become the shock force of political loyalism in the Canadas. Lafontaine wasn't likely to forget his loss at Terrebonne in 1841 when he sent his supporters back home instead of risking a brawl at the polling station. So too Baldwin had been forced to find another constituency after losing the past year in Belleville after yet another bruising by-election. The reformers blamed the Orange Lodge for this violence and condemned the secretive society for its baneful influence. If the reformers' law went into effect, it would have imposed harsh penalties on anyone associated with the organization, essentially banning them from public life. They wouldn't be able to sit on juries, take up civil appointments. Even tavern owners who rented out their premises to the lodge would have had their licenses revoked. The attack on the Orange Lodge went over wonderfully in French Lower Canada and amongst the more stalwart English reformers. The Orange Lodge was, after all, the enemy and its vitriolic attacks on reformers had been responsible for many an election loss, not to mention bruised face and broken limb. But many English Canadians, notably the Protestant Irish, but not only them, saw it as an affront. The Orange Order was about much more than politics. It was a fraternal organization, a brotherhood, a group for community solidarity of men hanging out and drinking, taking care of each other through thick and thin. And so the Secret Society's bill turned out to be a disaster for the reformers. It backfired in the first instance because when you attack something, you make it even more important to its supporters. So the numbers of those joining the order spiked with the news of the Secret Society's bill. It helped that the bill was such an illiberal attack on the freedom of Canadians to form their own organizations. Indeed, banning it went entirely against the liberal principles that reformers like to espouse. And so, across the colony, the Orange Order's members held public rallies, they gave speeches, and of course, they burned effigies. When a crowd showed up outside Robert Baldwin's house, he wasn't there, his daughter huddled inside and peeked out at the mayhem. She later wrote to her father about how, when the crowd decided to burn the leading reformers in effigy, Mr. Hinks burned quite nicely, but she proudly said they couldn't get you to burn it all. Now, debate in the assembly over the bill was, as you'd imagine, raucous. But the reformers' majority held together and they passed the bill. But this didn't make the bill into a law. The governor still needed to sign it and this is something Metcalf refused to do. It was, he thought, an illiberal bill. And so the governor reserved the law, not passing it into law, but instead sending it for review back to London. Now, later, after a long delay and long after the controversy passed, the British government would officially refuse to pass it into law. In the meantime, for Baldwin and Lafontaine, Metcalfe's refusal to go along with the wishes of the Assembly, with Parliament, as they put it, was nothing but arrogance and proof that their distrust of Metcalfe was warranted. The conflict between Baldwin and Lafontaine and Metcalfe simmered all through the autumn until it exploded over 
you guessed it, a patronage appointment. It was not, Baldwin and Lafontaine would have to admit in retrospect, the best choice of an issue on which to make their case for the governor's perfidy. But select it they did. The government fell apart over the fact that Metcalf selected a Tory, a man named Francis Powell, to fill the vacancy for the post of the clerk of the peace in the Dalhousie district. Have I lost you already? I'm sure I have. But there was a principle here, so let's stick with it. Metcalf made the selection himself without consulting his ministers. Clearly, this violated how Baldwin and Lafontaine felt that responsible government ought to work. The question was, though, would others see it that way? It didn't help that Metcalf made the appointment in response to the pleas of a desperate widow. You see, Francis Powell's father had held the same position that he was now being appointed to. The father had died and the widow had come to the governor to plead on her family's behalf. The family would be ruined after their terrible loss. Is there nothing that Metcalf could do to help them? Couldn't he appoint her son to the same post? Now, at a time when many civil service positions were appointed for personal reasons and for questions of loyalty, it was a strong claim, and so Metcalf granted the request. But when Baldwin and Lafontaine learned of the appointment, they saw it as one step too far. They wrote to Metcalf to instruct him that he could no longer make appointments that weren't based on his minister's advice. How could supporters of the opposition, they asked, have more access to the governor than they did? Metcalf, of course, did not agree, and he told them so. He would maintain his independence. And so the reformers on the executive, predictably perhaps, met on November 25th, 1843, and decided that there was nothing for it but to force the issue and resign. Two days later, they announced their resignation in the House, and then it all broke out. This was the beginning of what's called the Metcalf Crisis, the test in late 1843 that would last all through 1844 to decide just what on earth responsible government meant. What it meant in the first instance was the end of the Lafontaine-Baldwin government. All of the ministers resigned in protest. All that is except one man, Dominic Daly. And it mattered that there was one who did not resign. Now, I haven't yet had the chance to talk about Daly, but he was a curious man and he played a pivotal, if enigmatic, role in these years. As a very young man, the Irish Catholic Daly had come to Canada in the 1820s to work for the lieutenant governor in the colony and had slowly managed to work his way into a succession of civil service appointments. He was friendly to French Canadians and the reformers found him agreeable, but he was also friendly to the Tories and they didn't mind him either. In short, he was a man who saw it as his duty to serve the crown and to stay out of the political side of politics even as he existed right at the centre of politics. After the Union, Lord Sydenham had convinced him that he should run for elected office. And then, when Daly won, Sydenham gave him a spot on the executive. He was exactly the kind of man Sydenham wanted. Daly kept to a very non-partisan view of government. 
he was there, he insisted, essentially, to serve. When the reformers all resigned en masse, they expected Daly, with whom they were friendly, to do so too. But he didn't. For Daly believed in the non-partisan view of responsible government, where local government served the crown and the people and not just a single party. All of this meant that even though all but one of the executive resigned, and even though a leading reformer passed a motion of censure against the governor's conduct in the assembly, even though, in essence, the assembly showed that it, it did not have the confidence in the colony's government, the government did not fall. For there was Dominic Daly, still serving, loyal through and through. And this was proof that even though the motion of responsible government had passed two years earlier, and even though everyone talked about responsible government like it already existed, in fact, Canadians did not agree on what responsible government meant, and the meaning of it would come to have, the one we have now, was not yet in existence, at least not universally. Instead of dissolving Parliament and calling a new election, Charles Metcalfe went looking for other ministers. The disagreeable Lafontaine, Baldwin and their ilk had gone off in a huff, but surely there were others who could be induced to lead the government. Amazingly, Governor Metcalfe found his man in Montreal when Denis Benjamin Viget agreed in early December 1843 to replace Lafontaine on Canada's executive. It was a stunning and perplexing decision, seemingly a reversal of everything Viget had stood for. You see, Denis Benjamin Viget was by this time an old man. He had first entered the Lower Canadian Assembly back in 1808, in the very same election that his cousin, Louis-Joseph Papineau, also entered the Assembly. In the decades that followed, Viget had always been a proud leader first the Canadian, and then later the Patriot Party. He was one of the very well-to-do Patriot, having succeeded in business and married well. In the lead-up to the 1837 rebellion, Viget had involved himself with the Bank of the People, a new bank which many saw as being directly involved in financing the rebellion. Although he was mostly in the background during the rebellion itself, there can be little doubt that he fully supported the Patriot, and was bitterly disappointed at the way things turned out. It was especially difficult for Viget because Governor Colborn had him arrested in November of 1838 at the time of the second uprising. And Viget spent the winter in jail refusing to sign a statement promising his good conduct. He insisted on a fair trial. And when he was eventually released, it was to great fanfare from supporters. In the lead-up to the union of the two Canadas, Viget joined with others denouncing the union, and he was elected to the assembly of the new province of Canada, along with that large group of French Canadians who saw it as their national duty to continue to obstruct business. And this might in part give some indication as to why at this very moment of crisis, when Lafontaine was leaving office, Viget decided to step in. Because, remember, Lafontaine had opted for an alternate approach. Lafontaine had said that the Union really could work if only they would win through to a kind of responsible government, then the French could control their fate in the new United Province. 
Well, here was LaFontaine leaving office, showing perhaps that this wasn't possible. And maybe, just maybe, Vigier could come along and show his impetuous younger colleague that the responsible government approach wouldn't work, and he would show him what would. At any rate, whatever the reason, out of personal spite for Lafontaine or delusion, Vigier accepted Metcalfe's offer. This meant that a governor-general had finally found himself a prominent French-Canadian with an impeccable pedigree to show that he was willing to govern with the aid of Lower Canada. The Upper Canadian side was easier and Metcalfe managed to convince William Henry Draper, the moderate Tory who had earlier governed under Sydenham, to join the new executive. And so, by the middle of December 1843, Metcalfe had cobbled together an executive of three members, the non-partisan Daly, the moderate Tory Draper, and the patriot Vigée. To say that it was an odd combination would be, well, rather correct. But it was a government of a sort. Now, Metcalfe and his ministers had to cobble together the rest of the ministry, build up a coalition that could, eventually, face the voters and, well, hopefully, win. At first, the press did not know how to respond to the swirl of events that brought down the Baldwin-Lafontaine coalition. Was this, as the ministers insisted, an issue of great principle, the actions of those who stood for the grand idea of responsible government? Or was it something grubbier, merely the desire of political partisans to control each and every appointment for their own purpose and to rob the governor of every last bit of the royal prerogative? But within a matter of weeks, proponents of either side began to press their views on the public, and so began the battle of the pamphlets. Each side took up the pen to argue their case. Vigée took up the case for the Constitution, for defending the royal prerogative of the governor. It was an odd and difficult and somewhat abstract case to make, made more difficult because it was being put forward by someone so unexpected, someone who in the past would have been more apt to criticize the governor. The reformers had a seemingly easier case to make, attacking the governor's obstructionism, the fact that he had refused to follow the advice of his elected ministers, this was not, they claimed, responsible government. And that was the crux of the matter, though not quite in the way the reformers explained it. Because the fight in early 1844, in the fallout from the Metcalf crisis, was about the meaning of responsible government. For Lafontaine's crew, the case was simple. In a parliamentary responsible government, the Crown's role, the governor's role, was vastly diminished there was almost no room for independent action. And the governor's advisors, the cabinet or executive or however you were calling it at this in-between time, definitely controlled patronage. For Lafontaine and Baldwin, this wasn't a matter of grubby politics. It was high-minded idealism. There was, though, another vision of responsible government at work, and Denis Benjamin Vigée made the case for it. In Vigée's mind, responsible government was more about ensuring that whoever governed in the colony took account of the different main interests in the colony 
and for Vigée this meant in particular the interests of French Canada. Vigée questioned whether the La Fontaine idea of responsible government would really work to defend French interests. What would happen, he asked, when an English party controlled a majority in the assembly? If responsible government simply meant allowing the party with a majority to govern at their whim, then what was to stop an English party from trampling all over the interests of les Canadiens? And given the steady stream of English-speaking migrants coming into the Canadas, surely this English majority was only going to become easier to achieve. Vigée proposed an alternate model, a vision of government which would, over the next few years, come to be called the double majority. In this idea of government, representatives of French Canada would take up positions on the colony's executive to speak on behalf of their section of the province. It wouldn't matter who controlled a majority of English-speaking seats. It could be the reformers La Fontaine was friends with, but it could equally be Tories. The key point was that the governor would need to listen to the majorities in each section, French and English, and he would have to call on the representatives of les Canadiens to be in the government. Under Vigée's vision, a responsible government of this kind meant the liberal inclusion of the colony's different fractions or factions into the workings of government at all times. A majority in Lower Canada would represent the interests and a majority in Upper Canada could govern for their interests. And neither side should impose its will on the other without the consent of the sectional majority affected, a double majority. Now, this of course is not the ideal of responsible government which is going to win out in the end. And so the double majority idea can seem to our ears a little strange. But in the mid-1840s, this was a very attractive ideal to many people, and it helps explain why a staunch nationalist like Vigée would agree to sit in government with the Tory Draper from Upper Canada. Of course, Vigée was himself also keen to put himself forward as the spokesman for Les Canadiens and to supplant La Fontaine. So, there's a lot about ego here, about the ambition of an old man long overshadowed by others like Louis-Joseph Papineau, and then facing the upstart Lafontaine, a man who wanted to get his own due. There's always ego. But the double majority idea would also prove very appealing to many Canadians in the mid-1840s. In the meantime, though, the two sides were going to have to fight it out at the polls to decide who had the public's confidence. The first test came in a Montreal by-election called for the 11th of April of 1844. Both sides went to the hustings with gusto. Our old reformer friend Francis Hinks went off to Montreal to start a new reform newspaper, The Pilot, which printed its first issue about a month before the election. Hinks absolutely delighted in the vicious partisan journalism of the day, and he didn't just use words. Soon he had helped to cobble together a coalition of Irish canal workers and French Canadians who took to the streets to raise a ruckus and disrupt Tory meetings. If ever there had been a thought that violent political intimidation was simply the work of the Orange Order, that idea was dispelled after this by-election. 
In fact, Hinks's gang so disrupted public meetings that the election was delayed five days after rioting ended in murder in early April. When the polls eventually reopened, Hinks' reform gangs controlled the hustings and the electors returned a reformer to the assembly. It was a boost for the Lafontaine-Baldwin coalition and gave them hope for the general election, which was surely to follow. All through the summer, Metcalf's miniature executive of Vijay, Draper, and Daly tried to lure in other possible leaders so that they could form a full government, which could then face the public at the polls. Metcalf was essentially trying to find the kind of loyalist coalition which Sydenham had put together. This was what governing in the Canadas had amounted to, bringing the governor down into the trenches of electoral politics, even as governors tried to maintain a stance of non-partisan dignity. In Lower Canada, Metcalf had to try to win away prominent French Canadians to his cause. He had to show, as he had with Viget, that there was a place in his government for representatives of French Canada. The trick was that Lafontaine had a strong grip on the loyalty of his followers. Into this tricky situation strode a figure from the past like the ghost of politics past. It was none other than Louis-Joseph Papineau. The Patriot leader had been in exile since the rebellions, living in France. But all through the discussions over the general amnesty or the particular amnesty of individuals, the name of Papineau had been sounded like a drumbeat. Vijay successfully pressed Metcalf for an amnesty for Papineau. But behind this amnesty lay a possible great hope. What if Metcalf could bring Papineau back to the Canadas and into his government? Surely the return of the great Patriot leader could break Lafontaine's hold on French Canada. From his exile in Paris, Papineau was intrigued but elusive. Nothing if not obstinate, Papineau raised the matter of all the damages he thought he was due. These included the salary he had foregone as Speaker of the Lower Canadian Assembly when the Patriot had essentially stopped government spending in its tracks in the lead-up to the 1837 rebellion. Papineau might consider returning, but surely this tricky little matter of compensation had to be dealt with first. Now, this was a non-starter for the British government, and so the negotiations stalled. But if Metcalf couldn't bring in Louis-Joseph Papineau, perhaps another Papineau would work almost as well. And so, in the summer of 1844, Metcalf and Vigée managed to convince Denis Benjamin Papineau, Louis-Joseph's brother, to enter the government. It was for Vigée a massive coup. He needed to show that his own idea of responsible government, the double majority, could work one where French Canadians could work with whichever English party held the ascendancy in order to represent their section. Winning over a Papineau helped, but would it convince other lower Canadians? By September of 1844, Metcalf had cobbled together enough prominent figures from the Canadas to swear in a government. The assembly met to officially provide a speech from the throne, and then it almost immediately dissolved in order to hold a new election. 
just under a year after the Baldwin and Lafontaine group had resigned, voters would head to the polls to decide which party the public would support. By this point, the tumor on Metcalf's face had eaten a hole through his cheek, and he was mostly blind in one eye. He was in almost constant pain, and yet he endured a symbol of duty and sacrifice. That, his supporters hoped, was something the electorate could believe in. The sacrifice of duty and the need to uphold the Constitution. Against this was the call for a Baldwin-Lafontaine-style responsible government, where government, including all patronage, ought to be in the hands of the people's representatives. There were two alternatives, two visions, and they would meet each other at the hustings in the autumn of 1844. And it was not at all clear which side would claim victory. so much for listening to 1867 and all that as always if you've enjoyed what you've heard uh, please do give us a five-star review on whatever site that you listen to us on tell a history-loving friend about the show and drop me a line via the website www.1867allthat.com i would absolutely love to hear from you next week we get into the hustle and violence of the 1844 election but we also look to the wider events in the world in the 1840s as a potential war between Britain and the United States seems in the offing. All of this hovers over the Canadas and puts the debate over responsible government into a new context. As always, 1867 and all that is created, written, and narrated by me, Christopher Dummett, and the sound engineering is by Rob Viscardis at Paradigm Pictures, with the generous financial support of Trent Online at Trent University. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that. 1867 and all that.